You're listening to the Back Home Network, presented by Homefield Apparel. Welcome back to the NIL Hotline. I'm Galen Clavio. Joining you today, I was hoping to have Olivia joining me, but we had some technical issues when we recorded yesterday. Happens occasionally in the podcast business. We look forward to having her back on very soon. Got a relatively quick episode for you today, but wanted to get some more updates out regarding what's going on in NIL and talk a little bit about the ramifications therein as we keep seeing deals, we keep seeing things pop up. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different stuff in the mix right now. And, and again, I would advise, you know, if you're on Twitter, there's plenty of material out there right now. There's news all over the place about NIL collectives forming. Um, it's tax season, so we've got NIL tax implications. I've got a special guest who can come on uh, at some point in the near future and talk through that. Uh, you know, but really, you know, I think what most people are still interested in right now is the impact that NIL is having on the recruiting process and the way that people are uh, in schools and the people with the schools are approaching name, image, and likeness and how to navigate what is essentially a brand new marketplace. And this is one of those things that I think the average college sports fan may not be 100% attuned to. And I don't blame you because this is it's one of those things where there's a very simplistic attitude oftentimes towards the college experience and scholarships and the way that everything fits together. And I still hear a lot of people talking through this concept of, oh, you get a scholarship and then you've got the scholarship for four years and you know you get a bunch of things with that that have a high level of value and, and that should be more than compensatory for playing at the college level. So why do we need NIL in the first place? You know, that's still an attitude I think a lot of people come to the table with. And so one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is try to help you walk some of those things back just slightly with the idea that ultimately you get a better sense of how NIL fits into the large scale of college athletics, how it fits within the financial realm of college athletics, and how the presence of NIL and NIL collectives and the stuff we talked about on the last podcast regarding Arkansas and what they're doing with their state law and, and how that might affect the way that NIL deals are brokered, what kind of, of effect that might have elsewhere as we get into the whole process of, of this market maturing and becoming what it will be in the next five to 10 years. So let's start off by talking about a piece that was in on three dot com. Uh, this is a piece written by Eric Prisbell, who's really one of the reporters that's very on the ball reporting on NIL. And, you know, one of the things that you'll hear as you talk with people in college circles is how, to some degree, NIL collectives and the money that's going into NIL is essentially in direct opposition and contrast to the money that has generally been donated to college athletic departments over the course of time. Uh, you know, what we see in this piece, and, and the piece is called Battle Between Athletic Departments, NIL Collectives Over Donor Dollars Real. Uh, it's this idea that ultimately a lot of the donations that were being made above board when it came to college sports would be donated directly to athletic departments. And, and those would go into facilities. They would go into 
scholarship money. They would go into you know you know whatever the general fund is. They would go to to coaching buyouts, um, and then you'd also have this underground marketplace, which was separate, where you'd have colleges and universities who would, in many cases, engage in recruiting inducements for athletes that that wouldn't make the news. And, you know, that represented a separate but important aspect of the overall college sports environment. And and frankly, you know, you, you don't hear college administrators talk about those things, but they definitely exist. They don't exist at every single school, but they're part of the overall economy. NIL has basically taken that part of the economy, that behind the scenes part, and surfaced it. It's no longer an underground market. It's an above ground market that people are aware of. And it's also expanded it. And this is the piece that I think is really fascinating because, you know, before you you didn't have to pay every athlete. Athletes weren't specifically always shopping and comparing what they were going to get out of particular deals. But it's, you know, certainly was something that was part of the equation, which I think helped certain athletes get to certain schools. But it was largely restricted to athletes that were perceived as having a very high level of intrinsic value, your your men's basketball players, uh, you know, your college football players, maybe even slightly less so in terms of the overall breadth of college football. You know, but for basketball, you know, we saw the the Adidas scandal that happened a few years ago. We, we've seen that sort of thing happen regularly. What NIL has done is by forming collectives and by putting things into a position where colleges and universities are doing this as an open market exchange, it's now allowed a lot of athletes to look at the process and say, well, I would like some kind of NIL deal if I'm going to come play at a school. And yes, you know, the argument is, well, we can't have pay for play. I think everybody is aware that that's actually what's going on, even if they will deride the idea of pay for play publicly even if they say that they're not participating in it you have to participate in it or you're not going to be able to recruit or retain the athletes that you've got so now colleges uh, you know college athletic departments are faced with an interesting conundrum because so much of their revenue generation model has factored in donations that would go directly there now you've got college athletic departments going out and saying, we need you to donate to the NIL collective because that's where the money's actually needed. And, you know, we, we, I just saw there, were, there was an athletic director the other day that came out and said those specific words. And, you know, you can look back at what we saw last year with Ryan Day's comments that got published uh, to the, the donors and alums in Cleveland saying that Ohio State needed, I think it was a $13 million war chest essentially for NIL to be competitive for deals against other teams that were recruiting similar players. And I'm, you know, almost certainly you're looking at SEC schools in that mix and some of the other schools that have taken football very seriously. So if you think about all of this, a lot of what you got to think about is, is twofold. One, from a college athletics department you have to almost on the fly figure out a new model by which you're going to be generating donations and also re-evaluating to some degree like how important are those donations really in the conducting of a successful athletics program and that's not just football and men's basketball that's something that's increasingly spreading to other sports Uh, you know when, when the entire 
aspect of college athletics is well gosh we're nonprofit we're amateur athletics therefore you know we're budget neutral we're not trying to turn a profit but we're also essentially you know we're taking all of these and putting them into into static budget line items whether that's you know facilities or whether that's coaching salaries which i guess aren't technically that static uh you're know, putting them into things that don't directly affect the athletes they indirectly affect the athletes well now it's like that money actually needs to be directly affecting the athletes because the athletes might not come to your school either as a new recruit or as a transfer if they don't have that money so you know one of the examples in the prisbell piece that i thought was interesting is that it really requires a reevaluation of how you handle athletic donations and just the general idea of how you handle revenue and finance as it relates to the college or university and the athletic department and the things inside of it. And you know they they mentioned Notre Dame in the piece as a school that's been good at like knocking down walls on campus and figuring out how to be progressive by combining efforts that previously were very siloed and very separate. This is something that, you know, having worked in higher education for a long time, I can tell you is a real problem. It's not something you would think of as a problem, but money at the university level at a lot of schools is based around this idea of responsibility-centered management, this idea that essentially you go out, you earn money through donations or through tuition dollars or through grants, and then you keep a large share of the money. And what we're talking about here, with this era that the, the, the member schools of the NCAA are moving into with NIL, really requires a more professionalized business approach. It requires that instead of thinking of everything as its individual, own individual silo, that we have to think more collectively about, okay, what financially do we need? Where does that money need to go? And realistically, can the athletic department, who's really supposed to be there to you know, manage facilities, manage teams, coach teams, uh, you know, serve the needs of athletes, are they really well, you know, well set up to handle an environment where they're also managing all of this money that's now in the system to try to get the athletes there in the first place? And that's going to be a really interesting thing because it is not intrinsic to higher education to work together well across boundaries. And and yet that's exactly what's going to happen here. And so as I look at this and I think about, you know, how college athletics is is dealing with things, I'm really going to be fascinated to see which universities are actually able to make that that move. You're going to hear a lot of noise from universities about how we're not going to play that game. We're going to stick to our principles. That's going to work just as long, you know, or just up until the point where the college's teams aren't actually being competitive in the environment that they're in. And that's where the alumni start to get angry. That's where people start to say, well, why aren't we competitive? Because our rival is doing X, Y, and Z, and they're clearly ahead of us in this area. It's a tricky spot for college athletics to be in. But, you know, the one thing I I always want to remind people with all of this is as you think about this entire landscape and how radically it's changed since uh, NIL was allowed, it, it was, you know, I think a lot of people, whether they wanted to publicly acknowledge it or not, privately realized that it was going to force a complete alteration of the business practices of college sports for the schools that wanted to participate. And honestly, I think you're going to see a lot more schools that want to participate than are saying that they want to participate at this point, because they look at this and they say, 
there is clearly a reason why we have college sports and it is not an educational mission for the people that are playing it. That's always what's been said. But realistically, colleges and universities are maintaining their athletic programs and want to be competitive in those programs because it makes such a huge difference in terms of marketing the school, in terms of doing alumni service by getting them excited, by helping to spur donations, not just to the athletic department, but to the university as a whole. Uh, you know, All of those things matter, and they're hard to put an actual number on in terms of how much they matter to the university. But especially in an era this next five to 10 years where universities as a whole are going to be fighting over an increasingly small number of college prepared students, the idea that you would be taking a step back by saying, no, we insist we have to maintain this model where the athletic department is generating donations that are going to X, Y, and Z versus we have to change our model and get money into these NIL collectives or whatever system we're using to manage NIL deals for students uh, who are coming in as athletes because that's the new business model. I think you're going to see a big shift as far as that's concerned. So I'd recommend reading the piece. It's an interesting one, um, you know, because it actually it also talks a lot about this whole idea of the digitization of the ticket market and, you know, learning how to find new sources of money and potential donations. And, you know, the fact that, you know, so many schools have been focused on ticket buyers, people that are showing up in person, uh, you know, rather than looking at the way that the modern sports fan for college really thinks about their relationship with their school and how, you know, despite all the noise, the, uh, people aren't really going to divest themselves of their interest in college sports because the athletes are getting paid because most of your younger audience, people under the age of 40, people who are going to be your next class of donors are all pretty well conditioned at this point to the idea that people who are playing college sports probably have some intrinsic market value and that's going to be paid. So this is something just to think about as you're thinking about NIL and how the implications are happening. And when you see these NIL collectives or you see athletic departments trying to point them in that direction, I don't know what the end game is on this, but I do think there will at some point become a, you know, a, a, a way of doing business that's going to be more or less accepted. And it's going to take in the reality that ultimately your donors, instead of donating money for a scholarship or donating money in, in support of a particular project, are going to say, all right, you know, we may not demand success every single year, but we're going to give money to this NIL initiative, knowing that it needs to get into the hands of players. And that's going to maybe eventually reestablish the kind of recruiting equilibrium that we've seen for a long time during the era where all of this stuff was underground in the first place. So anyway, just wanted to talk about that real quick and we'll have more. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the Caitlin Clark situation with the WNBA and just the overall setup. I mean, Aaliyah Boston ended up going to the WNBA, but we've got a lot of college players who are choosing not to go to the WNBA because right now they can make more money in college basketball if they're women than they can in the WNBA. So we're going to talk about that next time. We've got several other stories that we will be bringing to you as well. We'll probably start getting into some of our interviews with people in the NIL field, I would say probably in May. Uh, that's, that's what we're aiming for is we're still getting our sea legs under us here on the NIL hotline. But thank you all for joining us. Olivia will be back next time. Looking forward to talking with you folks. I'm Galen Clavio. We'll catch you on the flip side. So long, everybody.